taking a few minutes out of your day to listen to this message. This is the Journey Church Podcast. Our hope is that it leads you closer to Jesus and encourages you to live your life on mission for Him. For more information about our church and how you can get involved in what God is doing at Journey, please visit jrny.church. It's always great to be in church with you. Uh, as you're getting ready to be seated, why don't you turn to somebody to your right or left, just give them a high five, a hug, a fist bump, whatever you like to do. Just let them know it's good to be at church with them today, and then you may be seated. It's important at all of our campuses that we come to church with the right attitude. Attitude determines the atmosphere, and so when we come into this place uh, expecting God to do something great, uh, we're putting a weight on God that He can handle. And when, we, when we expect Him to speak to us, when we open up His Word and we say, Holy Spirit, uh, would you inhabit this place? Lord, would you, would you, have, you can have my mind, Lord. Uh, you can have my life today. This, this moment is for you to speak to me. Uh, when we do that, man, it changes the atmosphere. When we come in here and we just kind of go through the motions, uh, it has an impact on what God wants to do in and through your life. And so my prayer is when you come to church every week, you pray, this is not a normal thing. Uh, I'm going to be here for an hour, but this hour can impact every other hour of my week for the rest of the week and ultimately even in, for my life in eternity. That one, one hour in God's presence can change, change you forever. And so uh, we believe God's going to do that. And so if you're a first or second time guest here today, uh, we usually sing for a few moments and then we open up the Bible, God's word, uh, and we just ask him to speak to us through it. If you are a, a note taker, and I would encourage you, if you are a church person, you are only going to remember just a little bit of what, I, of what I say. You'll retain just a little bit, and it might be beneficial. But I believe that as I'm speaking, uh, that the Holy Spirit wants to speak specifically to your heart. And so I would encourage you, be a note taker. Bring your Bible if you have a Bible. Bring a notepad if you can see if you're sitting somewhere where there's enough light. Uh, open up your, your iPhone, your Android, whatever you have. They're going to put directions. Uh, open up the Bible app. Follow along in today's message. Take notes. Uh, go back to them during the week. Uh, ask God to continue to reveal himself to you. Uh, he wants to have an intimate relationship with you, and he speaks through us often through his word. And so we are, we're doing a sermon series where we have one more week after this that we entitled Losing My Testimony. And I said there's, there's three calls that every Christian answers if you're a Christian. One is salvation. Uh, the next is consecration, where you say, God, I want to become more and more uh, like you. I want, I want to grow into the person that you've called me to be. So salvation is, a, is maybe a one-time event, but consecration is a process, sanctification, to become more and more like Christ. You're a work in progress, and your job is to continue to say yes to the Holy Spirit. And then as God is growing in you and changing you, the third call is to become a witness. God doesn't do something in you just for you. That's selfish. He doesn't need any more selfish people in this world. God does something in you because he wants to work out something through you. That, that's what we call to be a witness or a, to testify. Jesus said this to his disciples quite frequently, that you would, you're going to have to give a testimony. You're going to have to stand before rulers and, and angry mobs and, 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 and people that are, uh, maybe have questions and, and don't believe, and you're going to have to testify to them of the truth of, of what you've experienced, of who you know. Uh, that I am. And so we started two weeks ago. I said, let's talk about what a testimony is. What's a testimony? Uh, it's the life that you live in the everyday moments. It's not necessarily just what you know that, 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 that is your testimony. It's, all, it's also the way that you live. I think that the way that you live has a far greater impact than any sermon that will ever be preached from the pulpit, that, that what you do every day can change somebody's life forever. And so here's the thing. Oftentimes, without even knowing it, because it's about your practical life, uh, we often lose our testimony without even knowing it. And the reason is because there's tests that we have to, we have to pass in order to have a testimony. Uh, a trusted testimony is a tested testimony. And so we, we established that two weeks ago. Last week I said, here's one of the tests, uh, patience. We read 1 Corinthians 13, and it says that love is patient. If you, want, if you want to have a great witness, you need to be a patient person. I said, here's why we're not patient. We live on empty. Uh, we often live lives where we question God, but we don't trust him. And so patience is really significant. And today uh, I want to talk to you about your language. The title of today's message is, is what I will call loose, loose language. Everybody look at your neighbor and say, this one's going to be for you. Like this one, I've heard you talk this week. I heard you speak. This one's going to be, spouses are going, this one is definitely from you. Another time my wife said, why are you preaching this? Somebody else that is better should probably preach this. And so this one is for me. I want to talk to you about the significance of it. This is what the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 13. It says, love is patient. 
love is kind. We can talk about kindness. I'll, I'll do a whole sermon on that, but I think it goes without saying that if you want to have a great testimony, you should be a kind person. Christians are not supposed to be jerks. Are, are you with me? Like it's just kind of, kind of par for the course, right? And then he says this, it does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud, it does not dishonor others. What, what is he talking about? The way we talk. What does he say? Does not envy. I don't envy. Let me, let me, let me tell you what envy looks like outside of, of your heart because envy is a heart problem, but envy comes out in criticism. If you're an overly critical person, oftentimes it's because you're not a content and you're an envious person. And who do you often criticize? Somebody that's doing better than you. You criticize somebody who's doing a little better, has something more, is a little farther out. I do the same thing with other churches. Who am I critical of? I'm critical of people that are farther along than me, people that I, I envy, right? And so I criticize. He says it does not criticize, does not boast, is not proud. Pretty much 100% of what we do online. Love is not boastful. Love is not prideful. Love watches the way that it speaks. It does not dishonor others. What's that? Gossip. It watches how it speaks in front of other people. Essentially what he's saying is, is he's saying your words build your witness. You should write that down. Your words, they, they either build up or, or, or tear down your witness. We've heard the, talk, the, the saying, if you're going to talk the talk, you need to walk the walk. And I agree with that. We kind of talked about that. But I also believe that your talk, it proves your walk. But the Bible says, out of the abundance of the, the heart, that the, the mouth speaks. In, in other words, your accent... The way that you speak, it oftentimes establishes your association. Let me, let me give you an example. I don't know if you've been to different parts of the country or not. I went to school in Texas. My wife is from Oklahoma. I've been to New York City, never been to Boston, would like to, visited Chicago a couple times, had some friends in college from New Orleans. And one thing that I've realized is depending on where you're at in the United States, you talk differently. Like you can be from here, and if you've ever been to Pittsburgh, we talk distinctly. They are weird out in Pittsburgh. Like I'm going to drive today to Oklahoma after church, and they're going to hit a certain line where it's going to feel like we're not in Pennsylvania anymore, but we're still in Pennsylvania. It's just the Pittsburgh side of Pennsylvania, right? You're going to get to Ohio. People talk similar to Pittsburgh and Ohio. Then I'm going to get to Indiana. I'm going to pull off to a gas station called Love's. Only in the Midwest and the South do they call gas station Love's. Up here we call Wawa, right? And so they're going to call it Love's or and you're going to pull into loves, and people are going to be friendly at all times of the night. They're going to say hi. They're going to say what's up. They're going to be friendly. They're going to smile. We talk differently based on where we live. I experienced this at college. I went to Texas. They used to make me say things. I was entertainment for these people. They're like, say this, say that. Why do you talk like that? And I'm like, because I'm from the Northeast. You know about the Northeast? That's where America is from. You're welcome. Don't dog me, I'll dog you, right? Like, I, they used to make me say things. Like, let me just give you some, some examples of how your accent establishes your association. Like, let me just give you some, some words. Like, some people say, you all, right? You all. Some people say, you guys. We say, I say that, you guys. My wife says, y'all. What's up, y'all? Where y'all going? And, and then in Pittsburgh, what do they say? Yeah, what's that crap? <laughs> Yins at all of our campuses. That's not right. What is a yin, right? I know about a chin. I don't know about a, a, a yin, right? It, you know the thing, the drink that we get, we push a little machine, it comes out, and then the new, the new time flavors. The old time, you used to only get one flavor, but now you can get a bunch of different sodas in one machine. And, you know, I don't, when I was a kid, you could only have about six options. And now you go to those new machines, you got about 32 options, and you can put a million different flavors in. Our kids don't know about the struggle, but we used to call that soda, right? Some places, they call it pop, right? Pop. Some places call it Coke. Everything, I went to, but that was down in south. Everything in Texas was Coke. I'm like, I'm like, you have a Sprite. Yeah, but it's Coke. I mean, no, that's, that's Sprite. That's the soda you're drinking. Let me educate you again. Once again, we made the country. Let me educate you. That's, that's soda. Even the way we say words. Like some people say crayon. Some people say crayon. Some people say crayon. I've met people that say crown. What's a crown? Crown. A uh, uh, lawyer can be lawyer or lawyer, right? Uh, uh, those little tiny things that we get in our, in our creek. Some people call it cricket creeks. Uh, they look like little tiny lobsters, but really they're just insects. Some people call them crayfish. Down south in New Orleans, they call them crawl dads, and they eat those things. I went to my friend's house in time in Texas, in Houston, and they had a crawl dad, a cray, crawfish, something like that. I don't remember what they call it. And they just throw this big uh, bucket of, of insect creatures, 
out with corn and stuff, and then you just pick off this cardboard uh, tablecloth, and you just eat insects from creeks that I used to catch when I was a kid. I had, I had no plans. I'm not going to eat caterpillars. I'm not going to eat grasshoppers, and I'm not eating a crawdad, a crawfish, or whatever you want. That's an insect, right? Some of you like mustard, but other, others of you like mayo or mayonnaise or mayonnaise. It, it depends where you're from, pecan pie. I, think, I thought that was fitting because Thursday we're going to eat some pecan pie, and some people call it pecan or pecan or pecan. It's, it's pecan, by the way. Like, your, your accent, it establishes your association. It tells people everything they need to know about who you're connected to. And so I want to show you a Bible verse in the book of James chapter 3. And if you are a, uh, a new believer and you're not familiar with scripture, uh, if you would ever come to me, we'd have a one-on-one conversation. You'd say, I'm trying to read God's word. Uh, and I, I don't understand. I started in Leviticus or, or Numbers. I didn't fully comprehend it. And so I got lost. Where should I start? I would say, you should start in the book of John and read the story of Christ, because really everything in Scripture hinges on Christ. And then afterwards, after you read the book of John, if you're going to continue to read, which you should, go to the book of James. And the book of James is written by the half-brother of Jesus, which is one of the reasons we believe that Jesus, uh, in the validity of the Jesus claiming he was the Son of God, because nobody's brother is going to also believe in you if you're not real. Like That's just not going to happen. You're going to be mad. You're going to say, he's my younger punk brother. He's a jerk. He thinks he's the son of God. Like, look, he's a loser, right? But for some reason, James, not only does he end up pastor in one of the largest churches in the New Testament, he also sacrifices and ultimately loses his life for his half-brother, Jesus Christ, because he believed and saw that he was the son of God and saw him raised from the dead. And so he pastors this church, and it's a very practical book. It's like a how-to guide for Christians. And so if, you, if you're looking at what, what it looks like to be a follower of Christ, go to the book of James. But I want to talk, I want to, talk to you in James chapter 3, because he talks about the way we talk. And this is what he says. He says, we all stumble in, in many ways. Anyone who is never at fault in what they say is perfect, able to keep the whole body in check. When we put bits into the mouths of horses to make them obey us, we could turn the whole animal. Or we can take a ship as an example. Although they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are steered by a very small rudder wherever the pilot wants to to go. Likewise, the tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. He says this, and consider what a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. The tongue also is a fire, a work of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole body, sets the whole course of one's life on fire, and is itself set on fire by hell. All kinds of animals, birds, reptiles, and sea creatures are being tamed and have been tamed by mankind. But no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. He gives us some examples. He says, listen, it's almost an impossible battle. We know this to be true. How many times have you said, you know what, this week I'm not going not gonna to be a jerk with my words. I'm, I'm going to talk kindly. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be patient. I'm going to let patience flow forth through my mouth. I'm going I, I, to be restrained. And then you get into a situation and you just throw up everywhere. You just, you just say everything that comes to your mind. You're, you make a, you, he says, this is the type of life that many of us are, are struggling in. He says, let me show you how big of a deal it is. Use some examples. But the one that I found most fitting in our time, because we can relate to it, is the one with the fire. Because we know if you're watching the news that there's a fire that broke out in California and it is moving so fast that it is destroying people's homes and taking their lives. If you go back about 150 years in 1871, there was a similar fire in the, in the, in the city of Chicago. 300 people died in this fire. 7,500 uh, buildings were destroyed. Over 100,000 people were almost in an instant homeless. And you know how that fire was started? It was started in Miss, Mrs. O'Leary's barn. She had a lantern set by one of her cows. And the cow reached back with his hoof and kicked over the lantern. And that lantern tipped over and the the hay that was in the barn began to be on fire. And that that fire that started in that little barn in Mrs. O'Leary's house, the winds came in and spread into Chicago. If you've ever been to Chicago, you know it's called the Windy City. And the winds came in and before you know it, that fire had spread almost uncontrollably and destroyed homes and killed people. And what he's trying to tell us is this is the way words work. Just one small little word, just one small little negative comment, just one... One word where you try to cut somebody to the core, something that slips, once it gets out, it never comes back. Once you say you can't come take it back, and we we know this to be true because many of us, some of the greatest struggles in our lives are words that have been spoken over us. 
I don't have time to talk to you about that in my own life, but some of the things that have continually uh, been a bad part of my life or continued to kind of push me uh, in ways I didn't want to go or even continued to come out in my own life as an adult were words spoken over me when I was a kid. Things that people said to me in a flippant manner in in passing, not expecting it to do what Scripture says it's going to do. He says it's like a small spark, but before you know it, the whole forest is destroyed. He goes on to say this in James chapter 3. He says, with the tongue, we praise our Lord and our Father, and with it, we, we curse human beings who have been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth come praise and come, cur- and come cursing. Am I preaching to you now? I, I hit all those tunes in that song and those words, and then on Monday, man, I, I'll be dropping some words that I'm not proud of. He says, out of the same Mouth, my brothers and sisters, this shouldn't be. Can both fresh water and salt water flow from the same spring? My brothers and sisters, can a fig tree bear olives or a grapevine bear figs? Neither can salt spring produce fresh water. Now, if I was to stop here and tell you how to fix it, but I want to give you some practical kind of things that we struggle in. It would be the same thing I said to you last week. What did I say to you? Why why are we losing your patience? Because you live on empty. The same thing applies. If, if I would just give you a little side sermon and just say, here's the only way you're ever going to overcome it in my own life, the, the weeks that I'm, I have a controlled tongue, the weeks that, because it's an everyday battle, it's not like a once and done thing, the weeks that I'm not saying things that are destructive to my family, to my kids, to the person driving in front of me, uh, to, to my coworkers, are the weeks that I'm filled with the Spirit of God. Because the Bible says, out of the abundance of my, my heart, my mouth speaks. So if you're constantly saying things that as I speak today, you would say, that's not me, then it's not going to be an extra work or extra effort or a book that you read. It's a change of heart. And the only reason you change, the only way you change your heart is you pray, God, less of me, more of you. I'm going to decrease. I'm going to decrease my desires. I'm going to decrease my dreams. I'm going to decrease the power in my decisions. And I'm going to allow you to increase in my life. And the more of your life that you give to God, the better that you will be with your tongue. But I want to speak to you about this because I believe that we're losing our witness in the way we speak without even knowing it. And I want to give you just, just two today areas in my own life that maybe you can relate with where we often destroy our witness with our words. The way we speak either builds up or tears down our witness. Let me give you number one, and maybe you can relate to this one. But the first one is, is our complaining words. Everybody say, oh, crap. This one's from my neighbor. The, the way that we complain, the way that we voice our disdain for things. Let me give you, just go back to Thursday for you. When it's the middle of November and we just had leaves on the trees and we barely got to experience any kind of summer because it rained and it feels like I was in winter yesterday and I came to work and the weather people said there was going to be maybe a light coating of snow (laughs) and they lied. Don't you wish you could have been some paint on the wall and watch me And the way that I replied to that, when I got home to my house at 4.30 after it took me 30 minutes to get home because I had to stop at the store to get bread and eggs and milk. For what, by the way? And I had to shovel my, my driveway on the 11th or 12th or whatever, 13th, whatever the day was of November. That's wrong. It was heavy because there was also leaves on the ground that I had not yet been able to bring up. And don't even get me started on the leaves, y'all. I spent the last three months complaining about the leaves in my yard and I have not even gotten them and now there's snow. And then after it snowed in my yard, then the leaves that were remaining fell on top of the snow that was on top of the leaves that I had yet done. And so now I have a leaf Oreo in my yard. I got lots to complain about. And I would say, you probably do as well. Don't we find... Everything that we can complain about in the world. Let me give you an example of my kid's life because I just kind of aired my dirty laundry out. But this week on Wednesday, uh, we, we, have, we come home. I work all day and then we come home and, and it was soccer practices. So in between soccer practices uh, and uh, I stopped at Giant and, and I had to get a couple things for the rest of the week. So hold us over before we go to Oklahoma. And, and my kids from time to time eat Pop-Tarts. Don't judge me about that. Uh, but we introduced Pop-Tarts this summer and they're just not leaving, right? And so we introduced, so every once in a while they have a Pop-Tart. And so I was at the store and I walked by uh, the, the, the freezer section and I saw that they had toaster shooters. Now, if you grew up in my era when they introduced Pop-Tarts, I think Pop-Tarts were the original and toaster shooters 
Strudel were like the bougie version of, of the Pop-Tart, right? <laughs> For everything the Pop-Tart isn't, Toaster Strudel is. The Pop-Tart tastes like a piece of cardboard. The Toaster Strudel is soft, right? The Pop-Tart on top of that icing, we don't even know what that is, right? The, the, the Toaster Strudel, it, 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 has, it, has, it has like melted icing you put on. The Pop-Tart inside of it, it is disgusting. Inside the Toaster Strudel, it's, it's like, it's gooey and it, you heat it up in the, in, the, in the microwave. And I know some of you put your Pop-Tart in the microwave, but that's just, listen, that's just trying to fake yourself out of how disgusting that the Pop-Tart is. And so on Wednesday, I went, and I'm like, I'm going to surprise my kids. I'm going to get them to, I'm going to show them. I'm going to take it up a notch, right? I'm going to give them what I never had. I had Pop-Tarts, but I had to go to my friend's house, Toast Strudel. So I got up early on Thursday morning, and I put the Toast Strudel in the, in the, in the, in the, the toaster, and I, I took them out, and I put the icing on it, and I got it all ready, and it came down, and they were like, what's this? <laughs> and I wanted to do this big, long description, same thing. That's Toast Strudel. Everything that the Pop-Tart is not, not the toaster strudel is. Pop-Tart is like Satan. The toaster strudel is like Jesus Christ, right? That is the generic version of salvation. Pop-Tart is, is warm. It is gooey. And the whole time they complained about it. They complained about the raspberry. It has too much raspberry in it. It's too, so- well, it's too soft, right? Oh, it's hot. I'm like, it, it's a toaster strudel. And I just think to myself, I think God thinks that about me all the time. If you ain't complaining about being single, you're complaining about being married. You're not complaining about, about having a job or not having a job. You're then complaining about having a job or not wanting a job. You find something to complain. You're complaining about not having kids, and guess what you complain about after you have kids? Your kids. You complain about how small your apartment is, and then you get a big house, and you complain about how big your house is. I wanted a big driveway so that my kids could play basketball because at my townhome, we didn't have a driveway. And our yard was the front, ro- the front road. It was dangerous. And now I got a long driveway. You know what I do every time it snows? This sucks. <laughs> it's awful. We complain everywhere that we, that we go. And pardon my language, but that's what came out of my mouth. <laughs> our, our, our complaining words have been a part of our lives since, since the dawn of man. In fact, there's a story in scripture about these people called the Israelites. If you're a Bible person, you'll know they're one of the main characters of, of the New Testament. And kind of the whole New Testament is built around the story of the Israelites, you know, stepping into the promises of God, uh, traced back to, to a man named Abraham. And so part of their darkest parts of their history were a season about 400 years where they become slaves to the Egyptians. They have lots of babies in this time frame. As you can imagine, 400 years past, there's about a million Israelites living under the the dictatorship of the Pharaoh of Egypt, you know, building bricks, whatever they show you at the Prince of Egypt cartoon that we learned. And so they do stuff like that, and their life is awful, and they cry out to God when they're there, God, save us. And the story says that eventually God sends them at just the right time, a man named Moses, and there's a lot of other backgrounds to the story, and Moses leads them out through a series of miracles to, out of, the prom, out of you know, slavery to the promised land. They get to the, the Red Sea, they turn around, and the Pharaoh has changed his mind, and he is on their back. And they begin to complain. They say stuff like, did you bring us out here to bury us? They say stuff like, didn't we tell you to leave us where we were at? Didn't we tell you it was better there? And if you read scripture, he's thinking, no, you didn't. You whined when you were there. And now you're whining at the Red Sea. And then we're going to walk through the Red Sea here in a second. And then the Red Sea is going to collide or cave down on the Egyptians. We're never going to hear from them again. And we're going to get in the wilderness on the way to the promised land. And you're going to complain about no food. And then you're going to complain about no water. And then you're going to complain when you get to the promised land that you can't do what God has asked you to do. And all that you do is complain. And the truth is, we will always find something to complain about. And here is why it is so significant. This this is what God told me this week. He said that the reason that complaining is such a big deal is complaining is really just a verbal attack on the goodness of God. See, the Bible says that this is the day, this day right here, that the Lord has made. Said it about Thursday, it'll say it about the middle of January, it'll say it in the spring, it'll say it in the fall when the leaves fall. It says that this day that you've been given, this is the day the Lord has made. The Bible says that God is sovereign, which means he is all-powerful, all-knowing everywhere in your life. The Bible says God will never leave you nor forsake you. The Bible says that God is good. The Bible says that all God's promises are yes and amen. And so when you complain about whatever situation that you are currently in, you are telling lost people, you are telling your kids, you are telling your spouse, and you are telling yourself that God is not that good to me. 
It is a verbal assault and a verbal attack on the goodness of God. Think about for me and my kids in the toaster strudel. I worked all day on, on Wednesday. I came home. I get one of my kids at 5.30. I take them to soccer practice. I walk through the mud to drop them off, go back to my car, go to Giant, pick up groceries, go home, drop them off, put them in the refrigerator, go back, take my other son, pick my other son up, put him in the car, drop my other son off, bring him back, 8.30, go get my other son. They come back. They take hot showers. They sleep in a bed with hot, warm heat and blankets they didn't pay for. They're going to get up the next morning, and they're going to they're put on clothes that they didn't pay for. And then they're going to come down to a table, and they're going to eat breakfast prepared by their father who went out the night before, hunted down the strudels, got up early enough to stick them in the toaster, and now has prepared them. And his banner over them is love. And not once do they go, thanks for the heat last night, Dad. Thanks for walking through the mud to take me to soccer practice that we're not even going to have any more games for because this is over and we're going to Oklahoma. Thank you for the blanket that you gave me, the extra blanket, because I was cold last night. Thank you for getting up early enough to make me breakfast so that I can come down and sit in a table that I didn't pay for and I'm going to drink water that other people don't have. God, you're, you're, God to me, it's, it's, it's daddy in that situation. Now, God, daddy, you're, you're good to us. Instead, they just verbally assault my goodness. These toasters are awful. They're too hot. They're too cold. They're too soft. They're too raspberry eat. It's a verbal assault. And we do the exact same thing to God. You're breathing right now. Have you told him thank you yet? Some of you shouldn't because you're a picture of unhealth. You have not taken care of your body. You don't take care of the organs in your body. And God still somehow has got your heart beating today. Some of you are going to go to work tomorrow. You're going to use talents, gifts, and abilities that you did not give yourself. Instead of telling God, why do you have me at this job? Say, God, thank you for the talent that you've given me. You're going to stand before people that don't know God, that don't believe he's good, that watch you in the middle of a situation. And here's what you're doing right now. You're saying, yeah, but to me. Yeah, but you don't know my situation. Yeah, but you don't know what I'm going through. Yeah, but you don't know. And listen, I went into the Bible as I prepared this message, and I tried to find a yeah, but. Yeah, but passage. Like God's good. Yeah, but he didn't give me what I wanted. So in this situation, this season, I should be able to complain because it just makes sense. And I couldn't find any yeah, buts, but I did find it even if. She's a story about a man named Paul who's kind of a big deal in the New Testament. He's the one that started most of the early churches and kind of was a missionary and he came from being a murderer. And his bucket list goal in his life was to eventually go to Rome, which was the epicenter of the world at that time, and preach to the leaders of Rome with the hopes that the gospel would then spread rapidly. And he wanted to go there and at the end of his life he got a chance to go there, but not as a preacher, as a prisoner. They took him against his will. They put him into an old first century Roman prison. They locked him up to a Roman soldier every day, all day, and he waited there to eventually be beheaded by the emperor Nero, all for preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if there was ever a yeah, but moment, it was here. I did everything I was supposed to do for God, and I practiced it, and yeah, this is the moment that I can give a yeah, but to God, and I can complain about it. And if you read the book of Philippians, it's the book you would think that he would come, at some point he would complain it. And watch what he says in Philippians 2, verse number 14. He says, do everything without grumbling or arguing everything. I'm locked up in, 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 against my will to a Roman guard. He smells awful, by the way. It's dark, it's dingy, and the food and the amenities are not that great here. But I'm going to do everything without grumbling or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure children of God without fault and a warped and crooked generation. Watch what he says then when you live your life like this. Then you will shine among them like the stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. And then I will be able to boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor in, in vain. But watch what he, here, here's the, the, the even if. But even if, e even if, watch what he says. I'm being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and serving coming from your faith. I am glad and rejoice with all of you. So you too should be glad and rejoice with me. I'm here against my will and I'm going to do everything without grumbling. And even if this is the end of me, I'm still going to praise God. You're never going to hear me complain. You know what's so cool? If you go to the book, uh, the first chapter of this book, he tells his listeners, he says, he says, I'm not here in vain. 
I've been, I've been strapped and shackled to these guards and what I could have complained and most people would have complained. Instead, I saw a captive audience. And for eight hours a day or whatever their ship was, I told them about Jesus. And as I've been telling them about Jesus, some of them have been responding to the gospel and then their families have been responding to the gospel because Paul had an even if mentality. You see, ask God to give you a heart that is praised. What's the opposite of complaining? Praising. And even in the times when you don't feel like praising, what's the answer to that? An even if mentality. I'm going to praise here today, even if God doesn't give me what I want. I'm going to praise here today, even if my week wasn't exactly what I wanted it to be. I'm going to praise here today, no matter what my situation is. Why? Because complaining is an, is an attack on the goodness of God. And then number two, this, one, this, one's, this one's for somebody else, and maybe it's for the same person. Not only is our complaining words driving a wedge between us, but it's our critical words. Our complaining words and our critical words. And maybe you don't struggle with this, but I would say of the two, and I just told you how much I struggle with complaining, that this would be even my even greater struggle. That it just comes naturally. Because of my life and because of my perspective often, and because if I'm real, real honest with you, I would struggle with envy. And, and, and because that oftentimes I feel justified in what I say because I always feel like I'm right. You ever been there? That, that criticism just comes natural. What's criticism? It's, it's different than correction, by the way, because we, we believe in a culture of correction here. Correction is done up close with somebody. You're close enough to look at them and say, hey, you're not living the best life that you need to live. You're not making the best decisions. That's, that's, a, that's a culture of correction. Criticism is different. Criticism is always done from far. It's never about that person. It's always about you. And I always say, man, I struggle. In, in my house, I struggle with criticism. With, with, with my wife, with, with, with my kids, with, with my job, I've struggled with criticism. And here, here's why criticism, when you're a believer, is, is such a significant thing to, to struggle with and ultimately to do in your life is because, I don't know if you know this, but I have never met a critical person that I was like, you know what, I want to be like that person. They always find the negative. They're a jerk. They're always pointing the finger. They never look in the mirror. That is somebody that I want to be like in the future. It's always like, I don't want anything. I don't want to be that person. I don't want to have a critical eye. I don't want to be a critical parent. I don't want to create critical kids. I don't want to have a critical church. I don't want to raise a critical staff. I don't want to raise critical people. I don't want to walk out of here ever and have the finger pointing out and say, I can't wait to point my finger in somebody's chest so we can tell them they're going to hell. I want to walk out of this place all the time with our hands and our fingers pointed towards us saying, God, what is the work you want to do in and through our lives? Because it's our critical words that often push people far away from God. In fact, I would say this, that criticism makes you look a lot like Satan. That, that criticism makes you look a lot like Satan. In the book of Revelation, we find out that Satan is called the accuser of the brethren. He accuses us day and night. He points his finger at us. He finds what's wrong with you. That's why when scripture says there is no condemnation, it's so significant. On one hand, you have the enemy who not only tempts you to fail, but when you fail, lets you know. On the other hand, you have Jesus who watches you fail, who watches you run away, who watches you rebel. And he still reaches his hands out to you and says, there's no condemnation here. There's, there's a big difference. You see, you see, criticism makes you look a lot like, like, like Satan. Here's the cool thing, though. Encouragement makes you look a lot like Jesus. See, the opposite of, of complaining is praising. And the opposite of, of criticism is encouragement. Some of my greatest regrets in my life that I've noticed are, are not things that I've, that I've done or haven't done. They're words that I've spoken. I believe it'll be true of me of my parenting, of my past decade. Some of my greatest regrets in my life were the moments where I've lost my temper and not been patient, and I've said something to my kids that I can never get back. It's going, it's going to take a lot of repenting and then working to, to move in a different direction and to encourage them and, and to speak to them. Here's what the Bible says in Proverbs 12. Watch what it says. The words of the reckless pierce like swords, right? But the tongue of the wise, what does it do? brings healing. In other words, what is he saying? Your words are not neutral. They're not. They either bring healing or they destroy lives. They pierce like a sword or they're, they're, like, a, they're like a salve you put on somebody's wound. 
And I would encourage you. I'll say, you can use your words to hurt. You, you, you can use your words to do destruction. You, you can use your words to, to cause insecurity and doubt. You can use your words to destroy somebody who's maybe on the brink of, of destruction. You can use your words like that. Or you can use your words to heal. You, you, you can use your words to, 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 bring, to bring breakthrough. Jesus did this in the, with the story of the woman caught in adultery. It's one of the most powerful moments in Scripture. Someday I'll preach the whole message to you, but this woman gets caught in adultery and the, and the church finds her. Now it's weird that they found her because they find her with a church person. Sounds a lot like a setup. And they bring this woman and the Bible says she's almost naked, maybe naked, we don't know. And they, they, they embarrassingly shove her between, between, in front of Jesus and they're ready to stone this lady and they're saying, you gotta, what are you gonna do? You're supposed to kill her. She's been caught in adultery. The Bible says he reaches down and he writes in the, in the dirt. I'm not sure what he writes. We don't know. He might play hangman, something like that. Maybe he's just telling him, I don't even have time to listen to you right now. Maybe he writes their sins. I'm not sure what he writes. And then he looks at the woman, after he, after he stands up, he looks at the men, he says, he says, okay, whoever's never sinned, you throw the first stone. And the Bible says this one by one, the older than the younger, because the older, they have more wisdom, they know, oh crap, I've sinned a bunch, they walk away. And it's just her and Jesus. It's one of the most powerful moments of scripture. And she's ready to hear condemnation. She's ready to hear his anger. And he says, where are your accusers? Where are those that would condemn you? And she says, it appears there's none. And Jesus looks at her with his healing words and he says, then neither do I. He says, go and sin no more. Now, some of you say, well, that's just telling her to go do something. But what he's really telling her is the life of sin that you've accumulated to this point does not stop you from being effective for my kingdom. So go and be a part of changing this world. We don't know exactly what happens to her after that. There's some theories. But I believe her life was changed because of the word of encouragement from Jesus Christ. In fact, some translations say that he tells her, you're a daughter of Abraham. That was a Jewish way of saying, you're in. See, a word of encouragement can change somebody's life forever. Where, where, where words tear down, criticism tear down, words build up. I'll give you just a closing example before we, we leave we try to make this a practice in our, in our own lives outside of our home. And so we, we, we run this church, and so we consider ourselves business owners. Our business is the church. Our, our, our profit is people, not money. But a lot of what you do in a church is just putting healthy business principles into what you do. It's all about culture, uh, processes, uh, excellence. And I believe that's how the church should run because we have the most important message that this world needs. So because of that, we've, we've read lots of leadership books and we, we, we start to notice things. And one thing that we started to realize is, is there's, there's things that we, we like to see in our staff members that oftentimes we'll see emulated outside in the world. And so when we see somebody doing that, especially if it's a young person, maybe at their first job, we've tried to start to encourage them. So a few months ago, we were at Panera Bread and we were eating our breakfast and this young man, he comes walking around with a bucket and a rag and he starts to wipe off every chair. I've never seen anybody do this in a restaurant before, but I thought to myself, this should be a common practice because I know myself, I wiped boogies on my teeth before. Amongst all sorts of other things. And don't judge me, you have to. Sneeze, wipe your hands everywhere. So this guy, he was getting down, he starts, I'm, I'm 20 minutes I watched this, he starts wa washing chairs, he's wiping down the fronts, the legs, the underneath, he's picking gum off the seats. I mean, he is, he is fervent with what he's doing. 20 minutes pass, he's on probably the 20th seat. He is still like going hard after these seats. He's, he's wiping them down. He hasn't stopped at all. Nobody's come to check on him. There's not a boss standing over him. It's just this kid with this good work ethic. And in our spirit, we're like, we should talk to him. Because this is the type of employee that I want, this type of church person that I want. So my wife went up and talked to him at the end, and we were getting ready to walk out. We figured we both wouldn't go up there. It might be kind of awkward for this teenage boy. And so she stopped over there and she said, Hey, I just want you to know. We've been watching you in an unweird way over here. <laughs> and we own a business. We never tell people to church because that's always the end of the conversation. And we said, if we have employees like you, our business is going to be extremely successful. You're detail-oriented. Nobody's watching over you. You're passionate about the small things. And we just want to encourage you that we believe that your life has big things in store for it. And she walked away, and you could have just seen this kid gets down he just starts scrubbing it, it it's an encouragement has an amazing amazing impact on people's lives 
So how do we lose our testimony? We lose it from, from being overly critical because it sounds a lot like Satan to people and we lose it from complaining because that's an attack on the goodness of God. I want to read one more Bible verse to you as we, we close. The Bible says in Ephesians 4, watch this. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouth. Maybe make this your goal this week. No unwholesome talk, but only what is helpful. Here's how you know it's good. Is it helpful for building others up according to their needs that it may benefit those who listen? And I love this verse because we often separate these. And it says, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. And oftentimes, you know, people interpret that differently, but I think it's not in there right after it by coincidence. I think, I think he's saying it grieves the Holy Spirit when we're critical and difficult on, on his people. When, when God's not, the Bible says it's God's kindness that leads you to re- repent. See, some of you don't understand that about God as we get ready to pray today. God is not up in heaven critically looking down on you, disgusted by your actions, distanced from you, saying you better clean your mess up before you come back to this church. I can't even believe you're back here again. After all you've done this week, See, it's God's kindness. Yeah, you've done some stuff. Yeah, you've fallen. Yeah, you've carried some baggage into this place. Yeah, you messed up. But it's not God's criticism that's leading you to, to repentance. It's God's kindness. You've messed up. I still love you. You've been caught in sin. I'm not here to condemn you. I'm here to forgive you. You've come into this place and you've messed up again and again and again. The Bible says where sin increased, man, grace increases all the more. So we say, well, how does that work? The more grace you want, the more you understand God's grace, the more you'll begin to trust God. And trust is the foundation of a changed life. See, it's God's kindness, and he's here right now. He doesn't have a critical word for you. He calls you by name. He says, hey, come home to me. I love you more than you can imagine. My plan for you is bigger than you can imagine. Would you stand with me all over this house, and would you bow your heads, and would you close your eyes? And as we pray... And I know sometimes our habit in this transition is to kind of check out. And the reason I believe we check out is because we know emotionally it's over. But I believe this is the most important time in our service every week. Because it's the time where, where you close your eyes and you push everything else out. And you can have a little bit of, of one-on-one intimacy and moments with the Holy Spirit. Some of you, you struggle heavily in criticism. Some of you struggle heavily in complaining. Some of you, you just say all of the above. And your words, they have the power of life and death. People are watching. They're making an impact. And I'm going to tell you how you change. Because I can tell you what usually changes me. My weeks that I'm overly critical, my weeks where I'm overly complaining, and the weeks where I'm using my words as, as daggers in the soul are the weeks where my relationship with God has been on the back burner are days where I haven't been in the presence of God it's just the way that it works when the Holy Spirit fills me up oftentimes what comes out of my mouth is different I'm more patient I'm more loving I'm more grace-filled because the Spirit of God has done that in my own life but when I'm not full of God when I'm empty when I haven't spent adequate time my efforts are often in vain I will often lay my head on on my my bed at night and have a lot of regret and repentance that I have to say. And it's all good and well, but I think the Spirit of God would say, just get up and let me fill you up. And we won't be back here tomorrow. Just allow yourself to, to decrease so that I can increase in your life. Less of me and more of you. Because the Bible says, out of the abundance of that, more that your mouth will speak. That's what happens. That's how it works. So maybe you're in this place right now. And you would just begin to say, God, I want more of you. I don't want my words to destroy my kids. I don't want my words to destroy my spouse. I don't want my words to destroy my witness at work. God, I want everything I say to be, to be there to build somebody up. I want to be an encourager. God, I want to be a praiser. Maybe you would be so bold all over this place and so desperate that you wouldn't even worry about the people to your right or your left. And even though there's nobody singing and it's kind of awkward, that maybe you would just lift your hands towards heaven and say, here am I. I'm not worried about the person to my right or my left. They don't know me. I'm not in their life. But I know where my life is going. I know what it's leading to. I know who I've hurt. And God, I want you to change me. It's not your circumstances. It's your spirit. 
It's your spirit. The same power that rose Christ from the dead. And the same power that impacted the attitude and the heart of Paul in that prison. That same power is here right now. And as they pray, the Christians in this place, maybe you would not describe yourself as a Christian. Or maybe you don't even know what that means. I want to make sure you know before you leave. The, the word Christian just means somebody who has put their faith in Jesus Christ. It's not that I've went through a class. It's not that I grew up in church. It's not that I've been Bible college educated. It's not that I know the scriptures better than you. It's that at some point in my life, that I was dead in my sin, the Bible says. That I was broken beyond repair. That I was bitter and angry and hurting. That I was lost, scripture says. And Jesus found me. There was a time in my life where he knocked at the door of my heart. That's what scripture says. And I could physically feel him. Like a burning in my chest. And even though up to that point, maybe my life looked different than your point. I knew all the right answers. I went to church every week. I knew the Bible. But Jesus, he never knew me. And I remember that moment where I could feel the Spirit of God drawing me to himself. Because I've never been the same since. And in that moment, I simply just said yes to Jesus. Jesus, I want you to come into my life. Jesus, I want you to set me free. Jesus, I want you to forgive my sins. That's what it means to be a Christian. It means that you stop putting your faith on yourself. And you began to put your faith in your life in the hands of Jesus Christ, who died on the cross for your sins, was buried in the tomb, and three days later in power, he rose. He literally rewrote history, and he wants to rewrite your life as well. So maybe you're here today, and you say, I've messed up too much. I've done too much. I've gone too far. I've come with too many mistakes. I have too much baggage. I have too much regret. You're in the perfect spot, friend. The Bible says when you come to Christ that you have a chance to become a brand new creation. That that old is, is gone. That a new person has come. Paul wrote those words. He was once a murderous, angry man on a mission to destroy the church. And Jesus met him on a road in his normal everyday life. In his anger, his bitterness, his resentment, his threats. Jesus met this man and he changed him forever. And that same opportunity is here right now, friend. You're on the road to destruction. You're on the road towards bitterness. You're on the road toward anger. You're on the road of addiction. You're on the road of brokenness. I'm not sure what you're on the road on, but Jesus is here to meet you right now. And he is reaching out his hands to you. And he's simply saying, would you receive me? Would you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that I am Lord? Would you allow me to save you and set you free today? And that's what it means to be a Christian. We're not perfect people. We're saved people. And we have a promise of eternity, not because of the works we do here, but of the work that Jesus did for us on the cross. And that same message is here being proclaimed loud and hopefully clear. So what do we do with that message? Well, every Sunday at the end of the experiences, no matter who's here, no matter what the weather is, no matter what the Sunday message is about, we ask the same question. Do you have a relationship with Jesus Christ? Not did your grandma, not did you go to confirmation class, not do you even just kind of believe in God and the creator. Do you have a relationship with Jesus Christ? Have you accepted what he did for you on that cross as your salvation? He's the way, he's the truth, he's the life. No man gets back to God but through Jesus. And Jesus is here right now, friend. And it's your moment. It's your time. It's your time. So what are we going to do in this moment? The same thing we do every week. I'm going to ask you if that's you. All over our campuses or somebody standing in the front just like I am. And if you would say to me, this is my moment. This is my time. Jesus is going to be my Lord and my Savior. I want to pray with you as we close. I'm not going to make you come forward and we are going to pray a short, non-religious prayer. But I think there's power in admitting that this is your moment. And the way we do that here is we simply just shoot our hand up in the air. And so if that's you all over our houses and you would say, this is my moment. This is my day. Jesus is going to be the Lord of my life. When I leave this place, I'm going to become a different person. Today's my day. If that's you all over our houses. 
just want you in faith not worry about the person to your right or left front or back get that you all over our house would you just simply suit your hand up in the air and say hey that's going to be me right now jesus is going to be my savior he's going to be my lord he's going to be everything that i am everything that i'm going to be from this point forward if that's you would you just simply shoot your hand up in the air i'm going to give you one more second to respond i'm going to let you respond in royersford and limerick and plymouth meeting and then we're going to pray as we close i'm going to give you one more second if you're here in phoenix when you say i missed that first time but i can feel the spirit of god he's drawing me i'm not saved i'm not forgiven i'm not set free but today that's going to be who i am in christ i want to confess with my mouth and believe in my heart would you clap for the person in plymouth meeting right now with me is there anybody else say hey pastor that's me that's why we come to church that's why we serve that's why we give so that jesus can impact and change people's lives forever let's begin to pray jesus thank you for this day well the bible says that all of heaven stops to rejoice when just even one person responds so lord i don't know if there's other people that need to respond in this moment that maybe they missed that first chance because of fear uh, because of worry because of doubt spirit of the living god would you move miraculously in this moment would you change and impact somebody's life forever that we believe as a church that more can happen in one moment in your presence than a thousands elsewhere lord you break addictions you heal marriages lord you bring forgiveness where we have been unforgiving lord where there's been bitterness you bring hope and you bring love lord where there's been anxiety and a spirit of fear god you're the god that brings the peace that surpasses all understanding god you're a god of purpose and direction god you're a god of sovereignty you're a god of love you're a god of compassion you're a god of hope and kindness and you are saving people right now you are setting people free and lord as we leave this place lord for those of us who know you lord this is not the end of a church experience but we leave this place on mission for you that we exist for those that are not yet here. That we want you to work in and through our lives. And so you did a good work in us. And this week we want you to do a good work through us. And then we specifically, we focus on how we're going to speak. On our complaining, on our criticism, on our negativity. And Lord, we're going to replace it with praise and encouragement. Lord, we see something good being done by somebody else. We're going to encourage them and bring life with our words. Because your scripture says that our words hold the power of life and of death and those who of us who are crippled and we emotionally don't even know how we can talk like this god would you break us apart would you fill us up with your spirit and lord would you overflow in our lives lord because out of the abundance of what you're doing in our heart lord our mouth is going to speak and so it's not a habit that we work on it's not a book that we read it's not even a message that we hear it's a posture that we take we humbly submit that we need you We need your presence, we need your power, we need your word, we need your wisdom, we need you in our homes, we need you in our work, we need you in our marriages. You are the answer to every issue that this world is facing. We need you, Jesus. Thank you for all that you've done. Thank you for all that you continue to do. In Jesus' name that we pray. Church, would you shout amen one more time? Come on, let's clap together all over our houses.